0: G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, thank you for subscribing, and uh, we're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this podcast. We don't ask for much in return, but we'd be incredibly grateful if you could just pop to the Apple Podcast or iTunes uh, and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great, um, and uh, and we've had a a few good reviews uh, reviews recently, and many many thank you for those, and a a few emails as well. It uh, definitely makes uh, Brian and myself very pleased. So today um, we're going to talk to Dr. Joe Headley, who is one of our lecturers here uh, in exotic animals, and we're going to talk today about um, what do you do if someone brings you in a, uh, a reptile into your practice. So many thanks, Joe, for uh, for coming in again.
1: No worries.
0: Under <laughs> no dress whatsoever, which is which is good. <clears throat> So, you, uh, so, 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 Joe. I suppose uh, um, you're obviously uh, more. Uh, is it right saying you're more focused on reptiles? or that that's your that's what your interest lies therein.
1: Definitely. I mean, we see all exotics um, where we are, but it, reptiles uh, have always been what I focused on as much as possible, and um, they're what I keep at home as well.
0: Can, can I can I ask um, before we get into what do you what do you do with uh, uh, with a reptile? Like, why why do you think that uh, reptiles is your your focus? Is that what you were. Uh, um, involved with when you were you were doing um work having an Edinburgh
1: um so yes I mean I have always seen them um since I've graduated but I just find them more fascinating than other animals because we know so little about them um and so there's this whole area to find out and um, their behavior is fascinating and the more you learn the more interesting they get as far as I'm concerned hmm
0: very good very good um so okay jose so what would you what would you recommend to someone who uh, um, obviously i'd imagine in most general practice or first opinion practice whatever you like to like to call it um that uh, people bringing in uh, pet reptiles is not necessarily a, a common thing and, and obviously well not obviously but it, it tends to be i believe that uh, normally go to the newest members of the team not necessarily the the, the youngest so so what would you uh, suggest as a as an approach to Um, uh, you know I suppose the questions to ask um, when initially dealing with a um, someone's bringing in a reptile
1: yeah I mean I definitely agree that they tend to be given to the newest members of the team I guess that's why I probably started seeing reptiles uh, because as a new graduate um, I didn't say no when someone booked me in a snake Um, and so it doesn't often is people who don't know so much about the species but like I say you can start from the beginning and then find out um, that's what we've all had to do and there are so many different species like you've got over 10,000 reptile species in the world so don't feel bad if you don't know about them all ever Um, it's just a question of working through logically with the common species and common presentations Um, but in terms of starting point um so many of the problems we see are as a result of captivity and deficits in their environment or diet, so a lot of our time is spent um, going through those details with owners and looking at ways we can make improvements.
0: In, in some of that research, so people, some people come in with a species that they have miscorrectly identified, so they're, they're looking after it as a X, but actually it's a Y.
1: Um, so definitely, in terms of tortoises, a lot of people don't know the species of tortoise they have. They definitely don't know the gender of tortoise they have. Um, when it comes to lizards um, and snakes, um, they normally um, have gone to a pet shop to get them or a breeder, and so know a little bit more. But with tortoises, they've often been handed down in the family, and so no one, no one knows.
0: Okay. So what would be your uh, your general first questions you would tend to ask someone when they've bought in their Reptile. What, and, and maybe I should ask before that, what do you think are the top three or, or five reptiles that are presented in the UK?
1: Um, I mean, the ones we're seeing most are um, some of the common tortoise species. Um, so there's about three common tortoise species, the Herman, Spurthide and Horsefield. Um, and we treat those fairly similarly. So we'll just say the Mediterranean type tortoise, Um, even though that's slightly incorrect for Horsefield. In terms of lizards, bearded dragons and leopard geckos um, are the most common and chameleons to some extent, veiled chameleons and panthers as well. Um, And for snakes, mostly corn snakes and ball pythons, um, but we see a few other types as well.
0: Okay, okay, and uh, and would the initial questions you'd ask in in your history or your initial engagement with a client always be the same for those three main type of of. Uh, broad classifications of of species that you see yes
1: yes they are very similar Um, and right from the beginning I've always used questionnaires of husbandry and diet for clients because there are so many questions Um, so we have extended consults that we spent ages going through that time Um, when I was a new grad I had seven minute consults so that wasn't possible so I would get the client to fill out the questionnaire in the waiting room and then just focus on the main points Um, and then it took a little bit of work afterwards but at the end of the day find out more about that species and then send them out care information or follow that up and I think if you're keen to learn then you do just have to put that little bit of extra time in Um, but it makes so much difference.
0: And are most people quite willing to fill out that information because obviously they've they've come to seek some veterinary care but maybe do they understand the you know how important that is in, in the actual care of their pet whereas compared to necessarily dogs and cats
1: yes I think the majority of reptile owners um, understand how important the care is what they don't understand necessarily is what the right care is uh, but there is so much information out there which usually people have looked at to some degree so they understand why we're asking the questions. Um, but. Um, but yes, it's just they may not necessarily be that receptive to the changes, depending what we're recommending.
0: Okay, and so once you once you fill out that that question, what what tends to be the the main sort of sticking points in um, in the in the general care? Maybe we could break it up into tortoises, uh, um, lizards, and, and snakes.
1: Um, I mean, in terms of tortoises, uh, it's. Very variable. We tend to see two different groups of tortoises. So the ones that have been kept outside in the garden for 50 years without any additional heating or lighting. So um, they come with a whole set of husbandry problems, um, as we're not in the Mediterranean, um, versus the ones from a pet shop where people have normally obtained them with heat and light and sometimes got them too hot and dehydrated. um, And we see... A different sort of husbandry problems with that group. And they're the younger growing tortoises as well. Um, in terms of lizards, um, we see a lot of problems with inadequate UV lighting um, and also substrate ingestion. Um, so both sand and wood chip are common impactions we see um, in bearded dragons and geckos as well.
0: To, so they eat the, the bedding that is, is provided in their environment that they're in.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, and sometimes that's um, just accidentally. If you give a bearded dragon some crickets in its tank, it then runs around to get them and scoops up a mouthful of sand. Um, or sometimes that's intentionally, if they're calcium deficient, that they'll try and eat the bedding to get more calcium. But it's not very digestible. Okay. Um, and cool. then snakes, um, temperature problems, um, and lack of space and ventilation would be our main ones.
0: So most of these species, when they when they live either in the Mediterranean or in the in the in the climates, they, they would have some um, annual variations in climate. So, is there any issues with keeping uh, these anim- these uh, um, tortoises or or snakes or or lizards at the same environmental temperature all year round?
1: Um, potentially we don't know to be honest um, because definitely when it comes to tortoises they should be living over 120 years so you would need to do uh, quite a long study uh, to prove whether varying temperature or not actually affects their lifespan so I probably won't be around to give you those answers
0: but maybe a, a version of yourself might be able to in the, in the future maybe we can uh, with the technology sort that out one day um, so, so, they, so these would be the, the, the three main, main things and, and would that cover the majority of, of initial consults so in, in, in first opinion uh, general practice
1: so yeah the majority of problems we're seeing are husbandry related um, but we are get, beginning to see a lot more dedicated reptile owners who have put the time into finding out the best to keep their pets. Um, And we do see some primary infectious problems or traumatic problems or neoplasia, like true issues which aren't unrelated to husbandry too. Um, And I guess that's where it gets more interesting with people keeping reptiles for longer, um, that we are starting to see more conditions that we can do something about as against um, just the chronic poor husbandry deficits.
0: So with the, when you're taking a, a history from, um, uh, so, so after sort of filled out a, a questionnaire, obviously they're still, if they're, you know, they're not eating or they might be having ab- abnormal fecal movements, uh, I'd, I'd imagine. So the, the similar questions that you can ask, there's nothing necessarily specific. But with the digestive tract of most uh, um, reptiles being a lot uh, longer or eating less frequently, are they, are they harder to discern?
1: Um, Yes, yes, they can be, especially if owners are unaware of what's normal for their pet. Um, And definitely when it comes to GI transit time of a tortoise, for example, that'll be weeks and weeks. Um, So it can take a while to see what's happening. So, yes, we'll get owners as well as filling in a questionnaire. Um, If possible, on the phone beforehand, we'll say we'll need all this information. We'll get them to bring in a faecal sample if they've got one from the previous few days and photos of all they're set up at home, so they're prepared of how much information we need before we even get on to the clinical exam. Okay.
0: And then what, what is your approach to uh, a clinical exam?
1: Um, I mean, we spend a lot of time observing our patients from a distance because most reptiles um, aren't naturally that keen on handling. They live solitary lives, so they're not used to tactile contact. Um, there are some who... Are more social, definitely, um, but you have to presume they're not. So we look a lot from a distance at their behaviour um, before then just performing a nose to tail exam, as I would in any animal, just adapting it slightly for each species, such as a snake not having limbs, for example.
0: And are there are there any um, peculiarities or or tips that you might be able to give for for conducting that that clinical exam in in, in those species, as in as bees? maybe like listening to lungs and hearts, temperature, taking?
1: So I would say um, don't bother doing a clinical exam unless your animal is relatively warm. If they are cold, um, they will look sick or they will look dead in some cases. Until you warm them up, you cannot tell what's going on. Um, so always warm them first. Ideally get them brought in warm. Um, and then in terms of auscultation for example that might be well be limited by the scales or the shell Um, in terms of listening to the heart it's not something we're doing in a standard consult although you can um, but you're going to need a Doppler probe rather than a stethoscope in many reptiles again because the sound um, is blocked by the scales Um, but they've got the same organs to some degree, so you can check all the same things.
0: And do you check temperatures on on all these patients? Or? We
1: don't check body temperatures um, regularly. As I say, when they're brought in, they're generally cold, but because they are reliant on environmental temperature, um, as long as you're monitoring that, then the reptile's temperature should be reflecting that.
0: Okay, that's, uh, that's very good. That makes uh, makes obvious obvious sense when you when you uh, when you think about it. Um, And uh, and said before you asked asked people to to bring in a faecal sample if they have that, so what do you Mm -hmm. do do with that?
1: Um, I mean, I guess the most indirect, (laughs) easiest test we can do in our reptile patients um, is faecal analysis and most um, reptiles will have a parasite burden, which usually isn't a problem unless they're sick. Um, and so if they are sick, that's when the parasites um, will replicate and overgrow and we'll need to look at worming or other treatment. Um, so that is the easiest test to start with. Um, as I say, it may be a consequence of them being sick. So we have to be careful. Clients don't think that's the primary problem, but it is something that we can treat um,
0: and, help. and then and then say oh, secondary to to uh, environmental concerns and nutrition, habitats, humidity, uh, environmental temperature and how they how they're kept. It's been, what what would be um common presentations uh outside of that for um for those for those big three as it as it were?
1: So outside uh, taking husbandry deficits aside,
0: Absolutely,
1: you mean yeah. Um so well reproductive problems we see a lot um, it's difficult to say um in many cases those will be secondary to husbandry deficits um but that can be difficult to tease apart in some cases it's just dystopia for no obvious reason um and so we will see yeah egg binding um in all three groups um and we will see follicular stasis as well um quite commonly um so the reptiles follicles will build up to such a level that they take up most of the body cavity and the animal will present lethargic uh, maybe bloated um, and reduced appetite because there's just no room in there Um, so i'd say reproductive problems definitely Um, as i mentioned traumatic wounds um so again that can be secondary to husbandry problems or it can just be bad luck Um, and if people are keeping them well and they're getting more geriatric then we're seeing more um, neoplasia um, which can be a whole variety there's still a lot we're learning about that in reptiles
0: Okay, so so would it be fair to say that the the absolute majority are to do with having a better understanding of the husbandry of those individual species that we're dealing with um, and uh, a better understanding of everything that goes into that and educating the client's Yes. About getting that right initially. Um and then maybe as you said, some root, I routine um parasite prevention of whether internal or external mm-hmm. parasites, um, and getting that right first and then and then it's the same as anything else except as I suppose probably a higher incidence of reproductive abnormalities, probably because these are species that we don't routinely desex sex or, or do we yes. really.
1: no, we don't routinely. Although some people are starting to a little bit more. Um, but no routinely they're kept by themselves there hasn't been seen a need to neuter them as such
0: so you, you did mention at, at, the, at the start that there are uh, some tortoises that are kept you know, outside for for many many years and don't mm-hmm. seem to have a problem and is that just basically because of the um, mild winters that we might be having that we're not necessarily seeing a problem or it does take a long time for them to develop any clinical science associated with um, poor environmental management
1: I think it's mostly that it takes a long time to see signs, plus the ones that you see that have lived outside for 50 years will be the ones that were imported over 50 years ago. So the wild caught ones, the vast majority of those died. So the ones that didn't are complete survivors. They're really hardy. They've got through transport over here. They've got through everything. Um, And so they're tolerating our horrendous weather. Uh, I would say they survive while, rather than thrive on it. Um, and it's only as they get older that people see year on year of poor weather eventually having consequences.
0: And, and what would be your suggestion to people sort of starting out or, or they, they know they are going to see exotics? Is is they, I, I suppose, when I, when I was in practice, I got myself the, uh, in the BS heavy exotic manual because I think it was mm-hmm. a, a good a good overview of most species but is that the sort of thing that you'd recommend people to have a go-to or or some resource that they can look at?
1: Yep so I think if you're starting out and know you're going to be seeing a few more reptiles um, then it is having a few resources for the really common species so that you can start to pick up common husbandry and art problems straight away Um, we use the BSAVA manuals a lot and there's more specific reptile books too um, we use online resources such as VIN, um, and there are some reputable websites which will give good husbandry advice as well. Um, but it's quite helpful to actually trawl through some of the internet resources just as a client would, so you have some idea of what they're, what information they'll be finding, and we can look at hopefully a little bit more critically.
0: Well, like the, the fake news that we might be getting from the, uh, from the internet about husbandry of, of- of animals
1: they're very similar
0: and uh, and can i ask as as well see is if, if somebody came to a practice and said um my uh, family's interested in getting a, a reptile are there um reptiles that are more easy to manage if that's the right word
1: i think there are some that are easier to keep i would still query whether they're easy to keep well Um, but ones that have less problems. Um, So the bearded dragon is known to be one of the sort of more beginner's lizards, a corn snake, or perhaps Rob Python, a beginner's snake. Um, I don't think tortoises are easy, full stop. (laughs) Um, But uh, but yes, so people would probably err more towards those reptiles to start with
0: and and definitely i suppose just like with uh, with with keeping birds as well that certain species of birds are harder to manage for what what whatever reason so um and and again, probably what we're seeing as well with the popularity of of uh, social media um bolstering up sales of of certain breeds of dogs. I imagine that happens in the reptile world as well, and so comedians I are relatively difficult to keep is that is that correct yeah yes. they're, they're quite popular at the at the moment.
1: Yes um, Unfortunately that's often uh, linked to what movies been out that year as well. So not that long ago there was a big chameleon movie um, and so a lot of families decided to get those for those their children.
0: But, but there, is it the humidity is that one of the hard things and temperature that's hard to?
1: Temperature, to... humidity um, and UV light requirement and diet. So many factors with chameleons.
0: And, and the UV light itself, that certain species require different um, uh, wavelengths of UV light as well, don't they? So it's not even, it, it, it is that specific.
1: So yes, some are more reliant on UVB than others and some in the wild will be exposed to um, a greater amount of that than others. Um, whereas um, if they're more active at dawn and dusk or nighttime, then if you give them too much bright sunlight or the equivalent then that could cause health problems um, so it is a very complex world in it comes to uv light
0: and i imagine that a lot of people are concerned as well with certain reptiles about getting uh, getting bitten or uh, how they handle them you don't want to hurt them as well as them hurting mm-hmm. hurting you um so is is, is that Probably why um, observing is a is a very good thing before you uh, decide to to handle that, that species. And and how can you? Is there a way you can get more comfortable in handling these species that you might be might be dealt with without any experience? Or or what would you what would you recommend? Like if someone was going to start having a look at snakes, but not necessarily had a lot of experience with snakes. Obviously, there's way they're quite fragile in a number of ways, aren't they?
1: Yeah, I mean I would say the good thing about most snakes coming through the practice is um, that if someone's bothering to bring them to the vets and they generally care about them to some degree and so are likely to have some bond and they're likely to be a little bit more handled. So that at least applies to corn snakes and bull pythons. So I'd start with the smaller snakes. Um, don't start yourself. Um, <laughs> my snake medicine started with anacondas, which was uh, a little bit more of a challenge when you've got a 20 kilo, very fast and always aggressive snake. Um, that was a challenge of nerves. Um, I don't think you need to do that. I would say start with ones actually tolerate being handled well. Um, and as long as they feel supported and not threatened, um, generally, yeah they are very tolerant of it so it's just building people's confidence up slowly but i think it's fair enough to admit some people have snake phobias um and some people can overcome those and others can't um and that's fine
0: absolutely absolutely i, I mean it's uh it's a very good point is you know and or or spider phobias or or anything mm-hmm. anything else so uh so yes uh so, in, important to know I, I was just thinking in in, in my mind about uh, the environment that you would have to have for a, a 20 kilo anaconda to uh, keep that at home that would be uh, quite quite a quite a greenhouse i'd imagine
1: yeah yeah definitely they had a whole room to themselves they used to come in in wheelie bins <laughs>
0: That's, that's fantastic. Um, and uh, do you have any other... Uh, do you think we've, we've covered the, the basics of how to approach a reptile? Do you think there's anything else that we need to uh, we need to talk about?
1: Well, I guess in terms of general approach, it's making sure you've got all the information you can from the owner, not stressing if you don't know how to interpret that straight away. Like I said at the beginning, I just used to collect the information from the questionnaires and then tell them I'd call them back or post out some information. Um, And clients really liked that because they knew I wasn't just going to fob them off with have an injection, it'll be fine. Um, They knew I would genuinely research about their pet and it was a great way to learn more. Um, So collect the information, collect what information you can from the exam, but if you're not sure, um, take photos of lesions. You can then go and see, look in books or look online and see whether that is a normal variation for that species or not. Um, and once you've got the information, the great thing about reptiles is nothing happens fast. So you don't have to make a decision then and there to do something um, really heroic. Often you can either admit to hospital if possible um, or send home for a night while you work it out.
0: Obviously, the resources that you would need to hospitalise these these patients would, in, would include uh, you know, the UV lights and humidity capabilities. So, so a... a uh um, it, you know.
1: Yeah, a vivarium setup if you can. Um, but if you don't have that, then it may be as simple as a heat lamp over a secure cage, um, and at least that's providing extra temperature, just as a temporary option um, while you work out a more supportive treatment.
0: And you, you never know where those, uh, those uh, first uh, few consults or if you are a, uh, a recent uh, graduate or, or someone who um, is being exposed to these type of uh, uh, these type of pets, then you never know where it might take you. It might take you uh, all the way to getting further qualifications and being like a lecturer at the RVC. Who, who knows? Quite possibly. Quite possibly. <laughs> So many, many thanks, uh, Joe, um, for your time today and we'll we'll wrap it up there. So uh, thank you very much for for listening and don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit-based device and that way you don't even have to worry about missing a podcast. If you could leave us a five-star review, it might be cheeky, but it would really be helpful for us, um, for, for Brian myself, to get this information out there to uh, to the people that want to listen to it. So we'll play some show notes in the RVC pages. So if you just type in RVC clinical podcast into your search engine, it should be top of the tree. So remember, if you have any comments or suggestions to this podcast, please get in touch. You can either email dbarfield@rvc.ac.uk or tweet at donbarfield. Until next time, bye bye.